One of the problems we face living in the monastery is how to keep bringing up fresh effort in the practice. This is one reason why we have a different routines that involve group periods of group meditation, group chanting, listening to Dhamma teachings, studying the Vinaya, as well as chores and work periods as well. Because sometimes if we are on our own too much and our practice is not yet stable and our effort is not yet continuous, then it's easy to uh, drift and find it harder on our own to summon up effort for every part of the practice. Keeping the Vinaya, following meditation techniques, using them, reflecting on the Dhamma. Periods of solitary practice can be very valuable, of course, but especially in the beginning, they can be quite challenging as well. But whether we're in the group activity and getting some support and energy from that, or on our own, we also have to deal with uh, this tendency we have as humans to get used to things and then go about our business in a kind of half-hearted way or perfunctory way because we're used to various activities they're no longer fresh new uh, we have memories and we know what no say you know you, you do a chant you've chanted it before you know the words it's very easy for the mind to turn off or you sit down to meditate <coughs> You've done it hundreds of times before. It's very easy for the mind just to drift, not be very focused, even though the body is sitting there. Walking meditation, the same. (coughs) So a big part of our practice and a skill we have to learn is how to arouse energy and effort over and over again. Our aim is to bring that sense of effort to every time we sit, meditation, every time we walk, every activity we're involved with through our day, every day. Right effort is a very central part of our practice and of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's the essential ingredient that supports the arising of mindfulness and states of samadhi. That effort is to both protect the mind 
from falling into the hindrances, distraction, delusion, but also the effort to develop skillful states of mind, wholesome states of mind through the practice, perhaps developing the seven factors of enlightenment is a good framework to reflect on. Again, bringing up mindfulness, investigating the Dhamma, uh, bringing up effort, energy, experiencing calm, tranquility of body and mind, developing calm states of samadhi, and then upeka, equanimity. This is where our effort is directed to bringing up these wholesome states. On the one hand, we're preventing the hindrances from overcoming our mind, or if they have come up, to abandon them quickly, as quick as we can. On the other hand, to develop wholesome states of mind that will support uh, developing states of equanimity and an insight, wisdom. So we get a lot of strength from living with fellow practitioners, practicing together. When others are meditating, then we tend to try harder in our meditation. When others are doing a job with us, then that can stir us on to do that job, or chanting or whatever activity we're involved with. And practicing with others can be supportive we also have to pay attention to the, this quality of mind. How much effort are we actually putting into what we're doing? When we are practicing the mindfulness of breathing, the instructions are fairly simple. We're always regularly, frequently returning to the breath as our object of awareness, making the breath, making the mind fully conscious of the breath, fully aware of the in-breath and the out-breath. So it's a question you can ask yourself as you begin a period of meditation, what is the quality of my effort at this moment? How much effort am I willing to put in? And it's obviously conditioned by other factors as well, our physical well-being, how healthy or ill we feel, how tired we may be, hungry, what other distractions in the environment may be going on around us, and so on. Or our mood that we bring when we come to sit down to meditate, and depending on what's gone on in our day prior to that period of meditation, that will also have an impact. But as people practicing regularly, you know, we have to rise above 
all these different conditions. We note them, but we're learning to rise above them and not let them become excuses or obstacles in our practice. One of the ways that we can bring up energy, especially when we're struggling, so you're struggling to put attention on the breath, the mind won't settle down, it's thinking a lot, it's caught it, caused into some particular mood or some issue is bothering it. And we sometimes have to use discursive thinking, use the thinking process to train the mind. You know, the ideal is to put attention on the in-breath and the out-breath, be fully mindful of that. But if it's too subtle or the mind is too distracted, then sometimes we turn to the discursive meditations to assist in training the mind. As we begin our meditation, we might notice that we're just too tired and sleepy or too agitated to stay with the breath. So we might bring up a skillful theme <coughs> to recollect with the aim to bring up a state of mindfulness, but using thought, memory in a skillful way. So we have to say the ten Anusati, the ten recollections. Buddha Anusati, Dhamma Anusati, Sankha Anusati and so on. We may find there's a particular theme that has worked in the past for us to calm the mind down as we think it through using information and memory that we have and directing the mind to consider that theme thinking about it but keeping the mind within the sphere of that recollection say recollection of the Buddha most of us at some point or other have been inspired by the life story of the Buddha, the special qualities of the Buddha, maybe even the very great effort that the Buddha put into his practice. So bringing that up and recollecting it can be a way to focus the mind in a very wholesome, skillful way, even though <clears throat> there may be thinking involved. It's a way to direct the mind away from its more unwholesome thinking towards something that is wholesome with us, which can bring a sense of calm and happiness in itself. You're recollecting the qualities of the Buddha, the main qualities, the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha, the purity of the Buddha often talked about as the third quality. It really comes out of the wisdom of the Buddha, the human being who has had enough insight to free his mind, liberate his mind from the defilements which cause suffering, and purified his mind, but not only for himself, but also for all of us, for all beings, the benefit of all beings. Just taking a moment to contemplate that. 
our good fortune having come into the world and coming to meet with the Buddha's teachings and having heard the Buddha's name and to know that there is a being we call a supremely enlightened being supremely awakened being we recollect that recollecting the ability of the Buddha to teach so many different kinds of people other to teach other religious teachers successfully to teach ordinary people people with often with a lot of suffering help them to get through their suffering and the great sacrifice he made to do that and the sacrifice he made in his own quest for his own enlightenment leaving his very comfortable wealthy lifestyle having to give up his family his own wife and son parents go out into the forest give up everything and live very simply under difficult conditions all for the quest for enlightenment and for the benefit of us we reflect like this for a while thinking it through and maybe turn back to look at our own situation and whatever particular problem is bothering us at, at that time we might put it into perspective and we realize that the grumbling of the mind or the complaining or the worries that we have discontent in one way or another is really fairly minor in comparison when we think of the Buddha one of the reasons the Buddha gave for his own enlightenment was that he just didn't give up he had relentless effort he wasn't going to stop until he had freed his mind from suffering and the causes of suffering that in itself can energize the mind if he could do that for, for himself and for us then we can follow in his suit and we can because the Buddha was a human being we are human beings we also can practice in the same way the Buddha also said he wasn't content with the good qualities and the skills that he had developed on the path as long as he hadn't reached enlightenment the end of suffering <clears throat> he wouldn't sit back and just accept you know, I can keep the precepts or I can meditate and attain a certain level of calm he was constantly investigating and learning looking to go deeper in his practice to go further so in the end he went further than his own initial meditation teachers they told him everything until he could master it and even go better go further than his own teachers <clears throat> so he's one <clears throat> he's one who didn't give up and wasn't willing just to accept be complacent or just accept a certain level of peace, happiness, well-being that he had achieved but to keep pr 
probing further in his practice. Sometimes our complacency in the practice comes because we're we're feeling you know, it's good enough. I can get by with this. Maybe we can sit still for an hour, maybe. We think I can meditate for an hour, even though our mind is not yet particularly mindful. Or maybe we ex- we achieve a little bit of calm, peace in our meditation. We accept them oh, today. I've got something, and then again we slacken off our effort. And one of the dangers of developing samadhi states of calm is we do feel some pleasure and that can be quite satisfying to the mind so then we don't want to progress and contemplate or investigate further or we don't even try to preserve that pleasure we've got. We achieve a little bit and then we stop our efforts. We're not maintaining or preserving that pleasure, that state of peace. So we recollect the Buddha, his persistent effort, persistent search for the truth can bring up energy. And then when the mind is more calm from that discursive thinking about the Buddha within this that, that one theme, recollecting the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha or the life of the Buddha, then the mind might settle down and we may return to the breath. Sometimes we have to use our skills at thinking, memorizing, reasoning. We think things through as a way to both understand better, brighten the mind, and use up some of the energy of the mind until it's ready to settle down and be more quiet and obviously to follow the breath you have to be able to appreciate the quietness of the mind when it's not thinking very much it's just turn to the sensation of the breath we move from the coarse to the refined or the reflection on the buddha recollection of the buddha we reduce down to one word having thought through a number of themes and we might reduce it down to just butto as we know, it could be Buddha, Dhammo, Sankho. But because we've aroused faith and energy by recollecting the Buddha, then that word Buddha has real power to it. We're willing to commit to reciting it over and over again because it means something to us. For some people it could be Dhammo, recollecting the qualities of the Dhamma. Others, it could be recollecting qualities of the Sangha. Sometimes just remembering stories from the life of the Buddha, both in his own quest for enlightenment and then in teaching others, inspiring others, helping others to understand the Dhamma, maybe a particular story or incident arouses energy. It takes us out of our particular hindrance or mood that's bothering us at that time. Like they say in India, they 
in the time of the Buddha, just the idea of a Buddha was quite widespread. People had, you might not know exactly what, enlightenment evolves, but they had this sense that a Buddha was somebody special, a master, an enlightened teacher. And it would be great merit to meet a Buddha, see a Buddha. So just thinking of the Buddha brought people great joy. There was that time when Anattapindaka became his first, or one of his greatest lay benefactors. Hadn't yet met the Buddha. He was more interested in his business, trading, buying and selling. He went to his friend's house, a fellow merchant. Normally his friend would greet him and spend a lot of time with him and look after him very well. But that day he went to his friend's house and nobody took any notice of him. All the servants were busy preparing food and preparing a place because monks would be coming the next day. So after a while of being ignored, he asked his friend, well, why, what's going on, what's so important <clears throat> that you're all rushing around so busy you haven't got time for me, as it were. And his friend said, oh, tomorrow we're having the Buddha over. We've invited him for to offer dana to the Buddha. And it's the biggest day of our lives. It's the biggest blessing for our household to have the Buddha here. And suddenly it dawned on an Atapindika, oh, Buddha is coming. You could both see on the outside the sort of the external reaction of people, how much joy and enthusiasm it brought them. The fact that the idea that the Buddha was coming, and also internally, just this sense of happiness that there is a Buddha and there'd be a chance to see the Buddha. He realized this is something special, so his own mind brightened and he was determined to meet the Buddha the next day to come along. He recollects the Buddha the life of the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, can be that have that sense of brightening the mind. Joy comes <clears throat> and cuts through some of the complacency. And we don't know how much time we have <clears throat> in this life to practice the Buddhist teachings, to study them, learn them, practice them. That brings a sense of urgency in reflecting on our good fortune. We have to preserve that good fortune. You know, like someone who wins the lottery. As we all know, people win the lottery. It's like being born a human and then meeting the Buddhist teachings. But then what, can you preserve the money that you win in the lottery? A lot of people don't have that skill. They lose it very quickly. You know, we've met with the Buddhist teachings we're healthy, we're strong, we can practice them, but can we preserve that interest and that faith to fulfill that, that good fortune, bring it to completion? Some people are more drawn to rec recollecting the Dhamma, running through the qualities of the Dhamma. In the end, one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. And that's where we really find the internal Buddha, the knowing, the 
penetrating knowing that understands the Four Noble Truths, suffering and its cause and its remedy. For myself, when I first encountered Buddhism, reading books and every question I had seemed to be answered and answered in far more detail than I'd even thought of in the beginning. Just the explanation of how suffering arises for human beings, but then the explanation of what to do about it. The Buddha didn't leave us stranded just saying life is suffering and you're stuck. Straight away he said, well there's a cause but there's a remedy. An endless explanation, so there's really no room for your selfishness or your defilements, mental defilements, to maneuver. Every angle was covered because of the depth of his wisdom in explaining the Dhamma. Recollecting the Dhamma, Dhamma teachings, going through them, again, can be a skillful way to use up some of the restless energy of the mind, the distracted energy, until the mind settles down, calms down, becomes more one-pointed, and we can maybe return to a more refined object like the breath. Just recite one word, Dhammo, Dhammo, Dhammo. <coughs> Same with recollection of the Sangha. You can recollect the qualities of the Sangha in a more abstract way, or the lives of the great disciples in the time of the Buddha or in the modern era. You recollect monks that we've known. Maybe we've encountered teachers who've shown great compassion, great wisdom in different situations. <coughs> who've inspired us through their example, maybe they're, they're very composed state of being or great sense of happiness when you're with them or the explanations of the Dhamma that often are very to the point cutting through doubts and confusion in our mind there's different ways you can recollect the Sangha the idea again is to use up your discursive thinking in a very skillful way until the mind starts to settle down. So you might think from whatever, it could be 20 minutes, just thinking about the qualities of the Sangha. Those who practice well, practice with integrity, practice for the end of suffering, develop the true insight, freed their mind, liberated their mind. Again, it brings up energy and directs you to that which is wholesome in your own mind until maybe you're ready to settle down on the on the breath. Today someone reminded me of um, one of our teachers in the forest tradition in Lumpur Somchai Kaosukim in Jantabri who uh, He's always been considered a great meditation master in Thailand, passed away a while ago. He talked a bit about the importance of the quality of effort we bring to whatever we do, 
in our monk's life and how easy it is just to get caught into sort of doing things in a perfunctory way, maybe just following along because you've been told to, or you don't know what else to do, or not, but not really bringing true mindfulness to what you're doing or in doing it with a very wholesome intention, just kind of, kind of going along with the crowd or going along because they don't know what else to do. It's a very common hindrance we have to deal with. He talked about a story how he, when he was a newly ordained, he, I believe it was malaria, he got malaria. It was very strong strain of malaria. And at one point he was so weak he was went unconscious. And he had an experience where his mind separated from his body. And you might say technically he was dead. But he didn't realize it at first and he had this experience where he got up and he thought going to see another novice who was ill in the monastery. <coughs> he walked over to see him but didn't want to disturb him because he was asleep so he went back to his own kuti and then had a strange experience because he realized he was still sleeping on this bed or unconscious or even dead on the bed and he thought how can there be two of me there's one standing here looking and then there's this other version of me lying still on the bed and then I believe he said some white robed people uh, came along and took him off. Um, later, he said, to, took him off to what he understood to be the heaven realm. He didn't even realize he was dead yet, fully. They took him off to a heaven realm. He said the heaven realm was not that much different from the human realm in the way it looked. There's trees and buildings and things. But they said, we're coming to, to take you to show you your new house. And then he realized, he sort of woke up in this, you might say, might like a dream state. He woke up and realized, oh, this isn't normal. Um, you know, I'm not, no longer alive. I've died. Now I'm coming to my next life. And they confirmed that. And they showed him his very small little house in this, where he would be living in his next life. And he said it was tiny, very uninspiring. And uh, so it brought up doubts. He thought, oh, I'm a monk. Why have I got such a small little house? It was a house that, you know, the sort of place a beggar or somebody with no income might live in, just a little shack, tiny little shack. He said, surely I deserve more than that. And they explained to him that previously to being a monk as a layman he was a Buddhist and he had participated in many meritorious activities gone to temples made offerings to help build the halls and other things but in all these activities he'd never really had his heart in it he was just following family friends his intention was never very strong 
to really train himself or develop the path as such. It was just more like following social convention, joining in these merit-making ceremonies. Or even as a novice monk and then a monk, he was still practicing in a very kind of perfunctory way. He didn't really put his heart into it yet. But he had chanted the Patimoka and he chanted, I think, for Lumpur Fun, one of the great teachers of the time. So that he'd made enough merit there to earn this very small little shack in this lower heaven realm that he was visiting. So he said there and then he made a determination that if he ever gets the chance to be born as a human again, he's never going to do things in a half-hearted or perfunctory way again. He's always going to put his whole heart into the, the good that he does, the dana, the sila, the bhavana. And he said it was his good fortune he didn't die. He was, his consciousness returned to his body and he recovered eventually. But this event was imprinted on his mind and he recounted it a few times over his lifetime about the importance of the, the strength of our intention really putting effort into the good we do and not just doing things out of habit following others or because you feel you have to So recollecting Buddha Dhamma Sangha can be a skillful way to begin our meditation sometimes when we are feeling without energy or without focus, or if we're very restless or even sleepy, you're giving your mind some work to do and you cut through the sleepiness while you're recollecting these different themes until the mind comes through that particular hindrance or mood brightens a bit and then maybe you can direct to something more refined like the breath in the practice particularly the practice of meditation but really our whole life as monks is a meditation it's vital that we understand the, the role of bringing up effort frequently and paying attention to the quality of our effort the quality of our mind state. What kind of intention we have, say, as we begin our meditation or any other activity. The hindrances don't just come up when you meditate, they come up any time. Any posture, any time. At the same time, the enlightenment factors can be generated at any time as well. Whether you're chanting, eating, walking, doing a chore, meditating, sitting, walking. So learning how to bring up effort, observe the quality of your effort, how to arise, arouse stronger effort if your effort is fading, how to do this skillfully. That's uh, something we have to learn as we go through our practice. So particularly on nights like tonight, all night meditation, late night meditation might be something we can address 
when you're later in the evening and you're feeling sleepy or bored or just want to go and lie down you'll see how you can summon up the effort the energy to keep sitting and walking and not to give in to the the more unwholesome desires that come up so I'll leave you with these words for your reflection tonight 